it's obvious to me that uh, there are a lot of non-Texans in here. The, the manners are way too good. Uh, my name's Harlan Crow, and I'm uh, uh, thrilled to be here with all of you on, the, uh, on this occasion. Thanks very much to everybody for taking time to come from pretty long distances, in many cases, to be here. Uh, this is the fourth year that we've been able to put together old Parkland debates, but this is the first time we've been in this room. And uh, we've been working on it a long time, and uh, it's really fun for me to be here with everybody on this inaugural occasion. I uh, won't speak very long. We've got a lot to do. I uh, would like to to say that uh, that we have two teams here on the rostrum from Oxford University and Cornell University, and I'm really thrilled that they both come to Dallas to participate along with their coaches in in this uh, debate. We have high school teams from Argentina, Canada, England, Mexico, Peru, uh, Houston, Texas, L.A., Miami. I was going to say New York, but I was corrected a while ago. It's New York, New Jersey. Uh, New Orleans. Our friends from New Orleans are here. They may have brought some dinner with us or for us. The, uh, and then we have two teams from the Dallas area. So I'm really happy about all that. I, I, uh, I need to thank our judges, Dan Branch, my longtime friend, Dan Branch, a prominent attorney in the Dallas area and in the state of Texas, a long, a long time member of the legislature and and uh, just a general wizard about all things that involve politics and policy and all that. Eric Moyes is a highly respected member of the judiciary here in town and has uh, served the community in that role for a number of years. You, Eric, you were kind enough to be here with us last year and we're glad you're back. Um, ben Voth is here, uh, he runs the debate program at. Southern Methodist University is a professor of communications there, but uh, I think he's, uh, he's going to be our specialist in this area. And uh, so uh, those are the judges for today. Gary Kennedy has helped us in the past. Gary has uh, served at the, as the general counsel of American Airlines in the past and, and uh, has helped us here in the past, and we're delighted Gary's here. Um, Tom, where's Tom? Tom Melsheimer is going to uh, uh, kind of be the MC for this thing uh, as it moves along, and I don't know what we do next. Somebody could tell me. You let me come up. <laughs> I, I've made the decision after careful consideration that Tom should come up. Well, thank you, Harlan. This what a tremendous room this is. This we had heard uh, that this was coming uh, for several years now, and I don't. It, it exceeds the expectations that I had of uh, what it would be. And as I was telling Judge Moyer, I feel like uh, when I walked into this room, I've uh, added about ten IQ points just being here, uh, and uh, I'm afraid I'll lose them when I leave. Um, so let me introduce the teams to you from representing Cornell is Ben Leff and Alex Klein. They are coached by Sam Nelson. Very pleased and proud to have them here. 
And the team from Oxford is Sophie Large and Techway Tan Houston. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, they are coached by Elizabeth Webb. The motion to be debated, we, we've been very blessed, I think, every year to have uh, remarkably timely and interesting issues uh, that have been selected. The, uh, the motion to be debated this afternoon is that this House believes that refugee immigration is a human right. This House believes that refugee immigration is a human right. Uh, Oxford will argue the opposition. Cornell will argue the proposition. Now, we're doing a few things differently this year besides having it in this uh, remarkably elegant and sophisticated space. We're also inviting some audience participation, which we've never done before. So inside your program is an insert that looks like this. And what I'd like you to do is um, take the pre-debate poll and just indicate uh, one of the following. Do you support the motion? This House believes refugee immigration is a human right. Or do you oppose the motion? And just take that and check it off one way or the other and then pass it to your right and it will be collected. And the point of this, it's not a test. There's no wrong answer. But... Uh, the point of this is to see whether or not at the end of the process uh, the uh, articulate, cogent, brilliant responses of the debaters have caused you to change your position in any way. Uh, but you can do more than that too. You can also, during the debate, submit a question to the teams. And the way that's going to work is you see there in the middle of this uh, perforated card is the word question. And you can write out a question, please write it as, as legibly as you can uh, on the form and pass it to your right as well. For reasons of time, we need you to do that immediately after the third speech so we don't have any delays in the debate. So after the third speaker, go ahead and write your question if you have one and it will be collected. And we will... Uh, Look at that for, for posing to uh, one or more of the teams. Now, following the debate, uh, you'll be asked to return and complete this post-debate poll. It's the third. It's actually the top one, but it's the third one you'll be looking at. And uh, who do you think prevailed in the argument? And at that time, we will adjourn uh, to the reception area and enjoy some refreshments while the judges are deliberating on their decision. And then once the judges have made their decision, we will announce the results of the polls as the winners of the debate, as well as the winners of the debate. So there'll be a poll, what y'all thought, and there'll also be the actual judges deciding who won the debate. It'll be interesting to see if there's a, a match there or what the, uh, what the division is. Um, Having been on, uh, have, having done this before, I know that the folks on my right or left are just wishing for me to finish so they can get after it because they're 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 certainly eager to go. Let me just say one more thing about our moderator, Gary Kennedy's going to moderate the debate. As uh, Harlan mentioned, he's the uh, former general counsel of American Airlines, and he's uh, uh, steered steered the airline through a very very challenging bankruptcy and retired uh, in January of 2014. Uh, he's now on the board of PIMCO, one of the world's largest uh, asset management companies and really is a nationally recognized leader in the field of uh, diversity hiring and development 
in the, in the legal profession. So we're extremely lucky to have someone of Gary's caliber uh, here to moderate the debate today. So with that, I will simply turn the debate over to Gary and uh, good debating. Oh, thank you, Tom. Um, let me first uh, begin by restating the motion uh, for the benefit both of our debaters as well as the audience. The motion is as follows. This House believes refugee immigration is a human right. And again, for both for the debaters, who I know are familiar with this process, but also for our audience, let me just provide a quick overview of the debate and how it will be handled. First, the debate will feature four seven-minute speeches, two in favor of the motion and two in opposition. Following these speeches, the teams will be asked to address selected questions from the audience, as Tom indicated. We will allow a total of three minutes for each team to both prepare and deliver the responses to those questions. And then finally, there will be two summary speeches by the teams, which will be five minutes each. Let me also briefly explain the hand signals. Um, as you know, during the first minute of each speech, there is no interruption. Although if you wish to make a point of clarification, you can do so after the first minute and through until the, 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 the final minute, the, between minutes six and seven. And to that regard, I'll go ahead and have my hand up during the first minute and also during the last minute. Um, uh, I have a timer here, which you should hear the time at the end of your seven minutes and respectively at the end of the five minutes. But to the extent you do not, I will politely give you a hand signal that your time is, is complete. So with that, let us commence the debate. And with that, I will turn the time to Cornell. First, I'd like to thank everyone for this incredible opportunity. Uh, me and Alex in Oxford were discussing how we're used to debating in closets and any room we can find. So this is uh, an amazing place to debate. So in 1939, a German ship sailed with 937 Jewish passengers trying to escape Nazi Germany. Their first stop, Havana. What were they told in Cuba? That it was politically unpopular, that they potentially may be spies, that they simply did not want Jews. Their next stop, the United States of America. What were they told? Unfortunately, the exactly, exactly the same thing. This ship sailed back to Germany where most of those on board faced their deaths. Ladies and gentlemen, the United States was founded by refugees facing persecution abroad from countries such as England, no offense, Oxford. It's time that we recognize that it's not about what's politically convenient or politically popular, it's a matter of life or death for the refugees, and it's important that we recognize their human right to immigrate. No, thank you. I'm gonna do three things for you in today's speech. First, I wanna very briefly define what a refugee is and what a human right is. Next, I wanna look at why the right to immigrate is consistent with our conception of human rights. And lastly, I want to discuss why the plight of refugees will be substantially better on our side of the house when we recognize their right to immigrate. So first, what do we mean by a human right? No, thank you. A human right is an entitlement or a guarantee that any individual has, regardless of their nationality, sex, national or ethnic origin, or color. What this means is that where you're born, such as if you're born in Syria, should not condemn you to a life where you're forced to live under ISIS or under a dictatorial Assad regime that gasses their own citizens. Simply because you're born there and you lose the inherent birth lottery does not mean you should be forced to live there forever. Lastly, what is a refugee? 
A refugee is an individual who does not have a country they can safely return to or is forced to escape to avoid war or persecution. This is not someone who's an economic migrant and is seeking a higher standard of living. This is someone who cannot go home without threatening their own survival. No, thank you. Not at this time. Next, why we believe the right to immigrate is consistent with the human right. The first reason is because we believe birth location is entirely arbitrary. Now, what do I mean by arbitrary? As a society, we've accepted that race, gender, sexual preference should not determine your fate, should not determine your worth in life, where you end up. So there's inherent contradiction where we suddenly say that where you're born, the luck of where you're born, most of us here are fortunate to be born in a, a country that's able to provide for us, is able to determine your life outcome, is able to determine where you can end up, your ability to live safely, your ability to provide for your family. We simply believe that where you're born is arbitrary, just like race or gender, and should not be the determinant that is forced to condemn you to a horrible fate and usually death if you remain in your homeland, such as Syria. Go ahead, sir. If you believe birth is arbitrary, do you believe that any individual should be allowed to immigrate freely without restriction? No, not at all. That's why I define refugee as someone who does not have a country that they can safely call home. It's a result that they're being persecuted in their own country. It's a result that they uh, are being murdered by the government. It's not, it, we're not referring to everyone, referring specifically to refugees. Second, why we believe you must recognize the human rights to immigrate. We believe that human rights cannot be met in your host country. So what in, in the host country if you're a refugee? What do we mean by this? Alex and I tell you to, to look at the Rohingya people in Myanmar, where there are 1.3 million uh, individuals, Rohingya individuals, who are persecuted, who the government denies them the right to movement and confiscates their property. They're also denied of citizenships. They're not even recognized as individuals of the, your own country where they live. We also to tell you to look at Syria, where over 340,000 civilians have been killed, including 12,000 children, and simply 65,000 people have disappeared. Don't let opposition tell you that we can make the situation better in Syria. Alex and I simply believe that's not likely. We must be able to give them the right to immigrate, to give them the ability to build productive lives instead of condemning them to a fate that we do not believe any human on earth should be forced into and should be forced to remain in. No, thank you. Most importantly, why the plight of refugees will be substantially better on our side of the house when we recognize their human right to immigrate. So first, we tell you that life in refugee camps is atrocious. And Alex and I tell you that you need to be able to call a place home. So opposition may say, let's just build these camps. What are the problems with these camps? The average lifespan is, that people spend in a camp is 17 years. These are built as temporary establishments without education, without quality health care. The United Nations recently released a report that life in refugee camps for Syrians is so bad that people are choosing to return to Syria and risk their fate under Assad or ISIS than remain in these camps. We simply cannot count on these camps and a place where you're not able to call home. This is 17 years where people are wasting their lives away, where they cannot get a quality education, where they cannot call a country home that they can start a business in, that they can safely build a family in. We must give them the right to immigrate to a safe country. Second reason why we believe recognizing this human right will, will be better. Go ahead. Privacy is a human right, 
Is there human right to accuse airport security or a police subpoena where it might harm other people? Okay, so I really don't think that like going through an airport check is the same as a Syrian refugee who faces death by ISIS every day. There may be some certain limits on rights, but the, when you're saying the specific right to avoid life or death, this is where you must recognize their unlimited right to be able to immigrate. Second reason why life is better for these refugees, the international community can share the burden as opposed to condemning all refugees to live in just a few countries like, like the 2.2 million refugees who are now stuck in Turkey because the world doesn't recognize their human right. We tell you to look to the 1970s where there were 1.8 million Vietnamese refugees. What did the world do? The world came together, they were able to spread these refugees around the world, and they were able to give them the ability to live productive lives. Last reason why the plight of refugees will be significantly better. We believe the refugees will have the opportunity to contribute to society. We tell you to look to Steve Jobs' father, to the CEO of Intel, who were all refugees and were able to build lives when they can call a country home. For these reasons, Alex and I are so proud to propose. Thank you, everybody. And the next speech will be given by the leader of the opposition. We on Team Oxford believe safety and your life, these are important things. But where we object is that taking in refugees is the best way to help these individuals. Because let's be clear, there are many alternatives. The alternatives we stand for include taking in refugees at their own pace. This means being able to reject them if your country believes that you're not ready. It means sending aid and donations in kind to camps, which we believe would use these resources far better than their side. Crucially, there are many ways we can guarantee your safety from ISIS without accepting you to our country. They conceded even rights have limits. Yes, rights have limits when they threaten other individuals and when they take away from the people who are sharing with you in the first place. In this light, we believe this right that Cornell would seek to give individuals goes beyond giving them safety and security. It is a harmful right, and based on the consequences of this right being you know, propagated in society, this is a reason to oppose the motion. So what is a human right? We think it's something that's intrinsically good and important. You can have the right to privacy, but you do, you do not need to have a specific right to be free of checks when the need arises. In the same way, we believe you have a right to safety and security, but that is not the same thing as having a right to freely immigrate into whichever country you want to. Two arguments for this. Number one, this uncontrolled immigration hurts citizens of your country. Number two, even if you wanted to help these individuals, this is simply not the best way to help the most people achieve security. Point one, Governments have a primary duty to citizens, simply because they contribute to society. They pay taxes, they do jury duty. In Singapore, where I'm from, an individual at the age of 18 is expected to fight and die for his country. So citizenship is important. Democracy means being able to vote for the type of community you want to build and spend your life in. It might be good to help these individuals, but there is a very big difference between something that is good morally and something that is an obligation morally. Quick thought experiment, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to help the poor. That is not the same as saying if they turn up at your door, it, 
is acceptable for them to take whatever they want against your will. Because it's one thing to say it's good to help the poor, it's another thing to foist these obligations on a community against their will. So it's important to end suffering, but we need to respect the democratic rights of individuals to take this at their own time and pace, not right now. Why are there many good, legitimate, reasonable grounds for individuals to say, perhaps too many refugees is a bad thing? First of all, because there is a huge resource strain, especially in the economies that are recovering from recession. Given that the United Nations reports that refugees who come to these countries tend to live off welfare, 91% of them take food stamps in the status quo. This means that their side would deprive our citizens of the resources they need to build their lives as well. No, thank you. But second of all, cultural differences means that a huge, overwhelming number of refugees is a very hard group to integrate into your society. For instance, in Germany, the country which best fits their model, they took in thousands of refugees at a time. What happened recently in Munich was that on a public transport, two pensioners were beaten up by four asylum seekers because they had tried to protect the integrity and modesty of a young lady who had felt sexually harassed. We think this is the consequence of a large group of individuals who come in who feel alienated in a completely different context. Now, we're prepared to accept not all of them are like this, but this is why this can't be a right, because there are many reasonable cases where limiting the number of refugees we take is important to our democratic consensus and to our community that we seek to build. Before I tell you why their side would hurt more individuals, go ahead. Our slightly higher taxes are making our lives slightly more inconvenient really equivalent to saving people from death or saving people from having to live under brutality without any rights. Cool. Thank you. My second point will show you why we can save more people from death and brutality if we don't take in the refugees that do appear at our door. Many refugees already pass through relatively safe camps, the camps that Cornell speaks of. For instance, the UN-run Zatari camp in Jordan or the Saloum camp on the Libyan border. These camps are not the most luxurious places, but they are at the very least safe. ISIS troops do not massacre individuals in these places. Why then do these individuals keep trying to find a way into Europe, into places like Denmark, Germany, or America? Because for them, if they manage to make this leap, life goes from being tough to being comfortable. Because these are the countries with the best welfare policies, with the most developed economies. This is perfectly understandable. But what is the trade-off we have to make? This is simply not a good way to use the limited resources we have at hand. Because in order to sustain these individuals and allow them to build a completely new life here, that costs a lot of money. It means paying for things like education, job retraining, so they can fit into the developed economies we live in. In order for them to become settled and productive, it means we end up using a lot of money from the pool we have, no thank you, from the limited pool we have to aid individuals as a whole. This might be acceptable if the refugees who did manage to arrive on our shores were the most needy and the most vulnerable. But in the most cases, they simply aren't. Think about it. Who can afford the $1,500 it currently costs to hire a boat to cross the Strait of Gilbertar into Europe? Or to afford a plane ticket in the status quo to fly into an American airport and claim refugee status? These are the individuals with the most wealth and social connections in places like Syria and Iraq. Who gets left behind? These are the poor, the weak, the old, those who are unable to find access to transportation. So there is a real trade-off here. The money we use to help individuals build completely new lives of luxury is the money that we can no longer use to help the individuals who are left behind. Every dollar we spend on a refugee here is one less dollar we can send to the vulnerable. Go ahead. Unless you guarantee them a right, no one is going to be simply throwing the money. Never in history have we seen people 
making these massive donations, UN refugee camps are half-funded. They don't have enough money, and they won't until you recognize They don't have enough money because in the status quo, every developed democracy is so concerned with dealing with the refugee issue that it is very hard politically to commit a huge amount of money to these places. That's our stance, that the money that would previously go to refugees should go to these areas because when you build, when you build camps, you protect more individuals. So... The United Nations reports that every refugee that settles and builds a new life in America costs the taxpayer $64,000. This is 12 times as much as the UN estimates it would cost to care for this individual, to give him or her security in the very camps that they speak ill of. Literally, this means that when we accept one refugee and pay for his opportunity to rebuild his life here, that takes away, that deprives 12 other individuals from the funding that goes into the camps they speak ill of. What is the solution? We think the answer to making camps that are nearer and best placed to help individuals guarantee security is not to have refugees en masse, to use these resources to ensure that the camps that exist in these places that are nearby and often safer because they are a lot nearer are well-staffed, well-stocked and safe. Ladies and gentlemen, safety is important, safety is a right, but the right to immigrate wherever and whenever you want isn't, simply because it deprives of other people the same safety and security that Team Cornell would seek to protect. Go with opposition. Thank you. The next speech will be given by the Deputy Prime Minister. Sorry, I forgot my timer, which kind of need, because I don't want to talk for half an hour about this, which I could. All right, so get this really interesting description of the way that international policy works and the way that these countries um, view refugees from side up. And I'd say it's a pretty incredible dichotomy that's been given to us because on the one hand we hear countries only care about themselves only care about their own people and that is all that matters but two they're also going to throw tons of money at international aid and they really care about like international economic plight right i'd ask you to consider the fact as i move through this speech that this is a huge dichotomy in the way that they portray these countries and we don't think that both can be simultaneously true we don't think it can be stated that countries should only care about their own people while side by side they need to give a lot of money in international aid in fact we think it's kind of an absurd depiction of the status quo but first i want to talk about this notion of alternatives and and why um, fixing the camp system is not going to be possible, um, and why countries should reject them. So what we hear at first is, well, it's good for countries to be able to reject refugees, to have these alternatives. We're not quite sure then what happens from that, right? Like, if refugees show up on your door, as they did from Germany in the United States in World War II, do we just send them back to their death? Like, is that what we're actually hearing from Oxford's side? Because we don't think that that is a world we want to live in, or one in which we're actually sending people back to their plight. No, thank you. But second, we hear that we can give aid to camps. Now, the issues with this are many in part. As Ben pointed out, one, there is no impetus right now for countries to give aid to refugee camps, and we have not been presented one by side opposition. What is going to actually cause these countries, now that refugees are no longer on their doorstep or no longer posing an eminent like, picture in their lives, to actually give aid to these camps? 
out of sight, out of mind. They will no longer worry, they will no longer be concerned, and they will no longer actually feel the need to give this aid. But second, we ask you to look at refugee camps in Syria and Jordan where, okay, maybe the people are not being slaughtered there, but aid that is attempted to be sent there is very low, very few, but also often stolen by ISIS and by warring like terrorist groups on the fringes of this who then claim that they have some fun aid from the United States that they took from their starving people. Right? Like, we're looking at a situation where everything they've proposed as an alternative is not actually functional in practice, not actually feasible. And we've reached a tipping point where the only option is to make sure that these refugees can be settled in another country. Next, this large argument about how it hurts your own country. And what we hear is that citizens contribute to society. What I don't understand is why refugees cannot. Right? Consider the fact that when they talk about the cost to resettling refugees, it ignores that there is major cost imposed by these countries in rejecting refugees. Once we actually choose to settle them in mass instead of constantly rejecting them at our doorstep, we'll actually save costs that could be used to resettling these very refugees. Moreover, economic arguments that it hurts your economy have been proven in studies as pretty much null and void. Like, it's not actually necessarily true that it's going to cause us massive damage. But also, when we look at these cases of abuse to citizens by refugees, when we look at these cases where we hear that they are only taking our welfare, consider the fact that in every Western developed nation, there's massive media bias against refugees. Refugees are not the only people that rape. Refugees are not the only people that cause abuse. Refugees are not the only people on welfare. It is instead an instance where media is, tends to be predisposed in the same way that many people in this room have probably only seen issues like images of a certain kind of person on welfare in the United States in the media. When you consider the way that this is portrayed, it's not actually true that it's only refugees causing its problem. It's not actually true that refugees are this massive imposition. They are a small portion of who is on welfare. They are a small portion of the burden to these nations. And if the question then, at the end of this round, is do we lose a few tax dollars in providing welfare to these groups, even if this is the major issue in the debate, or do we let them die at the hands of ISIS? We still think it's clearly preferable to take them in, lose those tax dollars, but know that you have saved hundreds and thousands of lives at the hand of a brutal group that is imposing on these people and taking them away from their home. Um, did you guys have a question? It costs 65,000 US dollars to settle an immigrant in the US. With that money, the UN could keep 60 refugees fed and sheltered. The political capital exists, it's going to refugees in the US. We would just redirect it to those camps. Does your right to economic opportunity secede the right to safety for so many others? Okay, so first, we don't necessarily see how that aid is redirected. We don't think we've given a reason for why that will actually happen. We think it's more likely that countries will just keep this money for themselves, redirect it to their own citizens, as has been pointed out by their sides. Citizen is the biggest concern, right? What happens when you actually have a human right as what is imposed is you get more help to these refugees because of a mechanism that is put in place where the international community is actually forced to care about the plight of these refugees, right? If you as a country can then be accused of violating human rights when you do not care for refugees, when you do not set them up, when you do not give them the ability to escape the plight that they are facing, either in these horrible, atrocious camps that are vastly underfunded, so bad, as Ben said, that refugees are 
often finding that they are returning to Syria from the camps that they are in outside of Jordan, right? Like, they are actually choosing to face ISIS rather than deal with their own situation. I'll take you in a second. Sorry. Um, we don't think that there's not an impetus right now. The media is hostile to refugees because the refugees are seen as coming in against our will. Why is there a good reason for us to think that people suffering halfway around the world do not deserve our help? Okay, so two parts to that. One, the media is hostile to refugees also because of attitudes that will continue to persist as long as refugees are seen as an other that can be kept outside. We ask you to look at any isolationist or supremacist attitude in the past. It can usually only be solved by integration and forcing to interact with the groups that you place disdain upon without actually dealing with. But second, we think the reason we can declare this as a human right, why it must be declared as a human right, and I'll end my speech on this, if it is not, these refugees will die. It is a choice between death or moving to a country where they will be granted the right to life. We are talking about something so arbitrary, being born into the middle of a war zone or being born into a country that grants you your rights, your freedoms, the things that we view as indisputably necessary to human success. If we do not grant this as a human right, Millions will die at the hands of the countries that can then reject them, turn them away at their doorsteps, send them back to these horrible camps. The fact of the matter is the question is, do we do this as a right or do we turn our backs on these people forever? Thank you. And the next speech will be given by the deputy leader of the opposition. runs something like this. The media and people are generally anti-immigrant, that's why they don't currently vote for lots of refugees. But when we label something a right, suddenly they're going to be incentivized to put lots of resources into getting people who they, like in that media, do not think are likely to culturally integrate. We didn't think that was a realistic case for this government to support. We thought it was so much more likely that when you put resources where they were likely to do the most good, as we pointed in a point of information, people were so much more likely to put money there. I'm going to look at two broad things in this speech. Firstly, whether a right to economic opportunity for the few is a human right, and secondly, all of the other human rights that this proposition is going to have to cross in that path for economic opportunity. Looking firstly at that opportunity. The proposition firstly drew a straw man in our argument. It's not that we're planning on sending Jewish refugees back to Nazi Germany. It's just not that we're letting them permanently immigrate. Rather, we would construct reasonably resourced to the extent that you would also need those resources to, for permanent immigration, uh, ways to make those groups safe. So the question then becomes, do we want to support the right to the most economic, um, economically prosperous country in the world, or do we want to be putting that money into people who are, as they are saying, dying? They didn't even win on their own metric panel. So, let's look at that way up. Firstly, we think they do worse for other refugees. We told you about resource shortages. Firstly, in terms of the money, and we did the numbers for you. Secondly, no thank you. There were issues with political capital in that people were 
anti-immigrant because they saw them as taking away local resources, but more able to be sympathetic to people suffering overseas. No, thank you. That's particularly when you're looking at encouraging immigrants to take the jobs in, in particularly poor areas of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. Thirdly, we think the focus of the international media is necessarily limited. And when it's focused on giving these New York liberals a nice pat on the bat, you're so much less likely to be getting that where it's done best. Their response to this was just like, well, if we name it a right, it's going to be okay, isn't it? We told you the actual reasons why that worked, but moreover, they also were like, the media is anti-immigrant. And that is just to say that once you name it actually a right, as many people I'm sure in this room thought so before the debate, you're not going to be getting any more resources. Compare that to the focus that we would bring. Second, no thank you. So that is just to say that just as there are some people who are sitting in detention camps outside of conflict areas who you would wish to have good economic opportunity. There are so many people in the world suffering, ladies and gentlemen. The question is, at the point of resource constraints, of constraints of attention of international media, no thank you, of political capital, you choose where it's going to be used best. And that just meant that for every person they wanted to give the opportunity that they gave to Steve Jobs, they took away 60 people's opportunity to live safely for a few years in a refugee camp that might not be ideal, but at least under our side is so much better resourced. Secondly, we think you make the long-term situations of these countries so much worse. This is where I'll be adding substantively to this debate. As Tepway observed, the people are leaving a broadly middle class. They're the people with the means and resources to go. They're from urban centres where there's transportation. They're relatively well-off and educated. That is because it is a lot easier for a business owner in Damascus who has money and foreign connections uh, to leave that country than it is for a farmer in Al-Raqqa. So, in the short term, no thank you, we might be able to give ourselves a pat on the back and say that we've saved people from immediate harm, but in the long term, we think the cost to that country repairing and made so much worse and you get more instability in the long term. No, thank you. Why is that the case? Firstly, economically, you're taking out a huge chunk of the business owners and professionals in that country. The middle class, which is crucial for firstly pushing for democratic change, I'll talk about in a moment, but also the educated, who are likely to be passing down that knowledge. The, the, like Having at least some proportion of your population literate, no thank you, is incredibly important in modern economies. But secondly, politically, the people that leave are your opposition. Like Some Kurds flee Iraq, but the more that leave, the less friendly that post-conflict state is likely to be, and I'll take you in a moment, to those Kurds in the future. You're getting rid of lots of moderates as well. The kind of people that would vote for democratic change, put money in investment and have those resources are no longer in that country. That's why Vietnam had lots of refugees come to the US, to Australia and the Czech Republic, but in the long term there is a communist government with no meaningful opposition against them because that opposition left that country. And I'll take you now before talking about the effect of that on your case, Alex. Um, yeah, so definitely on this, um, when we're looking at refugees from Myanmar where everyone's property is seized and no one has the right to even identify as a resident of the country, there is no middle class. Everyone is simply freeing having a lack of a home state. I mean, that is something we regret. We note that there are far fewer refugees from Myanmar than there were from a place like Vietnam, but also that Burma is broadly on a trend towards democracy. Look at the papers at any time in the last three years. We think that is broadly as a result of maintaining that middle class, as well as the positive effects that not having angered Western states has had on that. So, what is the effect of everything this government does on their own case, which is trying to save people's lives in the long term? In the short term, you are 
uphold the right to safety for the very lucky few who had the, the best resources in the first place to keep themselves safe. But in the long term, you sow the seeds for much more violence, much more instability. We want to know where this opposition's like this 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 proposition's case ends. Is it that for time immemorial they're going to get the entire population of Syria to leave a country, and not want to put any seeds for change in that country? Note this panel: the comparative we bring you is that we get refugee camps and short-term immigration as a stopgap which have much more resources under their side. No, thank you. These people are much more likely to return home when it's safe, and there's going to be much less conflict in the future. The second reason we told you was that there were democratic rights. The De Deputy Prime Minister wanted to suggest there was some kind of tension in our case. We're making it just this clear. You have a right to safety, but when the human right to being a refugee immigrant, as they want to suggest, comes into conflict with a number of other rights, we would prioritise those other rights, including democratic rights and people's rights to safety. Why was democracy so important? We think it is an incredible resource strain to expect a country, and we didn't see any end to the, the proposition's like, notion of where this right ended. To that end, as soon as you call it a right, if you get the kind of change they're proposing, you are seeing pretty much open borders, which is a very difficult thing and a very sudden thing for people to accept, particularly when there are issues with integration in terms of resources and for cultural reasons. It wasn't just a media predisposition, ladies and gentlemen. It was that when you were suddenly trying to take people who have been in a very difficult situation and move them into a culture that is very different from their own, and particularly when they're more likely to be unemployed because of skills reasons, it is so much harder for the people in that country. There are a number of legitimate reasons. You had a right to safety, but not the right to immigrate or seek economic opportunity at the cost of so many others. So proud to oppose. Thank you. Now we'll move to questions from the audience. Just let me go in a moment and gather those questions and we'll begin. Let me remind um, uh, both sides, you'll have a total of three minutes to both prepare as well as respond to the question. And the first question that I will give you is for the proposition. Uh, the question is as follows. Why should refugee immigration be considered a human right as opposed to a state-granted privilege? Okay. So Alex and I think that um, a human right is a guarantee, and the problem with the privilege is that it is not a guarantee, and these refugees must be given a guarantee that they'll have the right to immigrate to a country that can protect them. We also think it's very consistent with the definition of what a human right is, which is something guaranteed to all people regardless of their background, ethnic, or national origin. And because as a matter of pure luck, these refugees were born into countries that did not accept them, persecuted them, or are forcing them to live in a war zone, then it's very consistent that we give them an actual right to be able to leave that country and find a new place that they can safely call home. Um, and just to add on to that, when refugee migration is viewed as a state-granted privilege, it can lead to the potential rejection of refugee groups on the whole, especially when they are politically unpopular. Um, so this happened a lot during World War II with Jewish migrants, and has happened a lot in southeastern Asia with the Rohingya people. Um, and that's where then you actually have the death of millions of people, and they're unable to find their, their own home state. Thank you.
And now the question for the opposition. If the freedom to seek refuge from tyranny and, and oppression is not a human right, then what qualifies as a human right? Thank you for the question. Our belief of what a right is is something that's good in most cases, if not all cases. That's why we think the right to speech, for instance, the right to safety, uh, the right to choice, these broadly defined rights are good things. The problem with this motion and this topic is that it calls for us to support searching self-fulfillment and searching freedom from tyranny in a very specific way. It's a very high burden that is placed because it's not enough that they are given freedom from tyranny. They often seek resettlement in the best countries with the most resources. And this is the language that Cornell has termed uh, economic opportunity, building a home. So we think these are worthwhile things, but when these things that are so specific and come at such high cost take away from other people who also need things like safety, who also need bare standards of security, that's why we don't think enshrining this right in a very specific, precise, but at a standard that is ridiculously high. That's not a right we're prepared to defend. So we're prepared to defend rights that are broad and good in most cases. We're not prepared to defend rights that end up taking away from other people who need them more. Thank you. And the next question then for the proposition. Okay, here we go. Since it is impractical to avoid enemy infiltration along with refugees, how do you balance the human right of existing residents to safety and security? Well, first, we think that in defining exactly who is a refugee, that still gives you clearance as a nation to determine who actually fits that qualification, right? So we're not proposing open borders in any way, shape, or form, Ben obviously rejected that offhand. Then, moving further, we think that if you follow the precedent that was set by the resettlement of Hungarian refugees during the Cold War, there is a way to avoid enemy infiltration or to avoid uh, basically having spies in your own country as a possibility, right? So when we look back to that resettlement, we don't regret that tons of Soviet spies infiltrated American borders and all of a sudden we became a red nation. You know, It was feasible to actually reject refugees or those posing as refugees and avoid this as a possibility, we think it might slightly go over our heads to define the exact bureaucracy that would go into it, but we're pretty sure it's feasible. And the final question for the opposition. Why does convenience determine what is a right as you characterized in both of your speeches? I mean, it's about convenience for, for people who, who have to be putting the money in the first place because they're going to put in a lot more money, but it's also about how many lives you save at the end of it. The proposition talks a lot about this guarantee. The problem is they're giving the guarantee to so many few, and importantly, it's also very inconvenient for people who have democratically decided that this is not the way they want their country to be run, that they don't want to have open borders, they want to have control over who they let in. And importantly, the proposition also seeks some kinds of conveniences. For instance, they wanted to have strict, as, as I just mentioned, uh, processes by which they decide who is deserving of a refugee. It's just as arbitrary that you're born in a slightly poorer country than the United States as that it is you're born in a 
uh, country in a zone of conflict, we think you should try to do the most good way you can, and, and in, in that sense it's convenient. We don't think you're doing it because it's easy necessarily. Um, so, so to that end, I, I don't think we would describe our case as one of convenience. I think we would say is it is a very high burden to expect people to give away their democratic rights and to give away lots of money particularly higher burden when what you're getting out of it at the other side is not that much meaningful change when there are so many people still suffering in the conflict zones the proposition wanted to talk about. Uh, so, so that is to say, it, it, it's a little bit about convenience, but what you're getting out of it is just making yourself feel good more than anything else. Thank you for the question. Thank you. And now we'll move to the final summary speeches, and we will hear first from the proposition and I'll remind the debaters that these speeches are then limited to five minutes. Alex and I find it problematic that the weight for determining a right is purely economic on uh, side opposition. We believe that when you're determining a right, you look beyond economics, you look at what is guaranteed to any human being, even if it causes a significant cost. I've never heard of weighing a right and saying something is a right because it is economically convenient. Several points that I want to discuss in today's debate. First, I want a very quick piece of refutation. We hear it of the last speaker that what this violates is your uh, right to democracy. However, if you look at most democracies, they actually limit individuals from voting on things such as rights. And the reason they do this is because they do not want to leave it up to these people. That's why we have in the Constitution guarantees that you cannot violate African Americans' rights, for example. If you really care about their democracy right, then you wouldn't have any Bill of Rights that limits the majority's vote to dictate whatever they want. So we believe that the right to immigrate and the right for these migrants is far more substantial than their right to democracy, with which countries have already limited. Next point. First, I want to discuss this notion that we should simply build camps because they are cheaper and like it's best per refugee. They did a figure you can save 20, uh, 20 times as many refugees. We tell you not to look at the cost, but tell you to look at the quality of life. So look at living in a refugee camp where the average lifespan is 17 years. Can you live a meaningful life, ladies and gentlemen, when you are literally forced to live in a one square mile place where you have no citizenship, so you are not able to leave? So what does this mean? You can't get educated, you can't start a business, you can't enter the world, you can't travel. This is very problematic. It's not simply about pure economics, but it's about the quality of life. And yes, even though it's more expensive to bring people to countries throughout the world, we believe it is worth this justified cost, because it's not simply about let's put 22 million refugees in a place where they can be safe, even if there they have no quality of life. It's about how do we give them a meaningful life, and the way to do that is to recognize their right to immigrate. Next, I want to very quickly look at this idea that only the, only the rich people are migrating, and this leads to the brain drain. A few responses. So first, we think even if you're smart or the middle class, you shouldn't be forced to stay in Syria and like condemned to a horrible life. 
More importantly, Alex and I fully support doing things like providing transportation, establishing UN safe zones. We tell you to look to the case of the Vietnamese refugees, where the world got together and settled 1.8 million Vietnamese refugees around the world. They also tell you that it prevents people from like laying the seeds of change. But how can we best lay the seeds of change, ladies and gentlemen? Is it better to force people to live in a camp for 17 years where they cannot get educated, where they cannot leave, or might they be more able to eventually contribute to change if they can move to a country where they can get a quality education, start a business, learn how to actually change the world? We think this is far more likely. We think generations of Syrians have lived, um, still want to make Syria a better place, and if they live, can move to the United States, get this quality education, and achieve resources. That's how you create change, not by condemning them to leave in a small one-square-mile camp. Lastly, on this undue costs and taxes. A few responses. So first, we believe refugees can contribute to society. They keep telling you it's such a burden. It costs $64,000 to settle refugees. They don't tell you that these refugees start businesses, that re these refugees contribute to society. Yes, we provide welfare for them, but we believe they can contribute in the future. Lastly, we tell you to look historically, where the world took in 200,000 Hungarian refugees from the Cold War. These were not Soviet spies. We were able to ensure the safety of the United States while also providing them and providing them a meaningful quality of life. So how do Alex and I want to conclude today's debate? We tell you that a human right should not be evaluated based on cost, ladies and gentlemen. Human rights should be evaluated based on what is guaranteed to any human being. We have heard no response for why their birth location is entirely arbitrary and why it's fair to condemn an individual to live in a refugee camp or live in Syria for 20 years simply because they were unlucky and forced to be born there. That is what you must weigh in today's debate. We do not want to weigh a mere economic argument because that's not how Alex and I want us to determine rights. So proud to propose. Thank you. Thank you, and we'll hear now from the opposition. Uh, before I begin my speech proper, I just just to say that on behalf of I think both teams, thank you very much, Mr. Crow, for this fantastic opportunity and for this fantastic venue. So, if we could just have a final round of applause, please thank you. That would be very nice. We know the United Kingdom has a checkered past, but yet Team Oxford is still quite proud to say life, security, safety, these are important rights and they are important goods. We do want to give the right to life and security and safety to as many individuals from places like Iraq, Syria, Egypt as possible. The problem with ignoring the economics and efficiency is that Team Cornell forgets efficiency matters. To whom does it matter? It matters to the people who are left behind. It matters to the people who are told there is less left for you because more has gone to the refugees who have successfully crossed the border into Europe or have successfully found a plane into the United States of America. I want to compare this debate by offering you a walk through two worlds. First, I want to tell you what the world of Team Cornell will look like. 
It is a world where, sure, there is a guarantee for a few, a few lucky individuals. They would be guaranteed acceptance at the border. They would be guaranteed a minimal utopia. They would be guaranteed jobs, a house, food, economic prosperity, and opportunity. Halfway around the world, this world would look terrible for the people who remain. What would they say to the Syrian child who asks his mother, why are we in this camp and why is it so poor? Why is there no money for us, for me to go to school or to buy a book? What would they say then? They would say, these resources have gone to provide the guarantees to the individuals who are lucky enough, the business owner who had a car. They were lucky enough to get the guarantee there is less left for us. This mother would have to say to her child, because of the terrible hostility that we face as Syrians in the media of the world, because our counterparts have infringed the democratic rights of so many nations, individuals like which not receiving the support that we otherwise could have. Efficiency matters. When there is a limited amount of money to take care of individuals and protect their interests, we think it is abhorrent to say a few lucky individuals can reach for the sky while the others who remain, remain trampled underfoot. In the world of Team Cornell, they might save a few and give them a huge amount of opportunity. But this comes at the cost of the basic rights of security and safety. Because let's be clear, as much as they've said these camps are terrible, the vast majority of individuals would still be stuck in these camps. The individuals we told you about right from the start, the less fortunate, the old, the young who can't travel, the individuals who are sick, sick often women who get left behind. This world might have a guarantee for a few. It's still not a world we want to live in because it is grossly unequal and unfair. What is the world of team opposition? And you know, we're, we're going to admit, to a degree, we did care about efficiency. Because efficiency matters when you're trying to save as many individuals from the scourge of ISIS or the horrors of war. Sure, we offer a lesser guarantee. We don't offer you the moon. We don't offer you the prospect of rebuilding your life entirely at one shot. But what we will offer is the minimum safety and security that comes in a camp that is well stocked with resources. We offer this to more people than their side could ever imagine. How do we offer these camps? How do we offer them the promise of improvement? Number one, simply because there are now more resources when individuals don't get a guarantee of refugee status. Because countries in Europe and America can dedicate more resources, not to the job training that helps these individuals, but towards building camps and shelters or providing them food and security. It also means we focus the discussion not on the refugees who have done terrible things. These refugees are tarring everyone with a bad name. We think with less democratic destruction, with less cultural problems that happen, there is going to be a bigger consensus about helping these camps and channeling the money that would still exist on their side into the camps that help more people on our side. Finally, to the extent that Team Cornell believes we can solve all problems by calling something a right, we'd call this a right too. We would have a right to security and safety. And if their solution is that people will now guarantee you these things because we've called it a right, we'd be very happy to say that safety and security in the form of a camp is a right as well, in a well-stocked camp with a secure existence. The point is this, ladies and gentlemen. We believe we still have a conscience on our side. We believe that protecting individuals, their lives are important. But the concern of this debate is not how do we help some lucky individuals who, by some luck of fate, were born into advantageous positions in the Syrian regime, or because they happen to have property, could afford the boat ride into Europe. For these individuals, on the exact same arbitrary factors that Team Cornell despises, they would get a better life. But this directly takes away from the individuals who remain. Ladies and gentlemen, for the final time, we're very proud to stand in opposition.
thank you very much to both teams. Your presentations were extraordinarily well done. And I know we just had a round of applause, but let's give just one more round of applause to our fine debate teams. And now for the judges, um, you'll begin your deliberations. And if I could remind you that you are voting for the team that did the best job debating the motion, regardless of your position, whether you agree or disagree with their position that they took. And the audience, um, we also want your votes on this matter. Um, and let me tell you, yours is a little bit different. Yours is, um, you're voting on your position with regard to this motion. Um, and if you'll pass your ballots then to the right, and we'll collect those. And now um, we can also, once you pass your ballots to the right, we can adjourn to the reception area where I'll turn the um, time back to Tom. Thank you so much.